Good morning, good afternoon, everybody, my healthcare crew. Thank you for joining me today again on another NHS 100K podcast with me, Matt Taylor. So today I am joined with Professor Norman Fenton. I'm going to read off some of the stuff that he's done, but then I'm going to let him fill in the gaps because there was so much when I was looking you up. <laughs> I couldn't, uh, I didn't want to fit it in. But correct me if any, if this is, uh, any of this is wrong, but currently you're, uh, you, um, you teach risk information management at the Queen Mary University in London. Um, you've got a PhD in mathematics, you're a chartered engineer, you're a chartered mathematician, you're a member of the British Computer Society, you've been an expert witness in, in criminal cases and, and, and cases of the such, and your current focus is on critical decision making and quantifying uncertainty using casual models. Is that about right? Yeah, except it's causal models because we're looking for, it's quite crucial to what we do because we're looking for kind of like causal explanations for um, what you see in the data rather than just do kind of like that sort of classic number crunching, which is what most people do. We're looking at causal explanations for the data like with biases, uncertainty about its accuracy and key information that's missing. And that's actually quite crucial when it comes to understanding uh, the kind of like the COVID data. And that's been kind of like a driving force for, for the research that we've been doing on COVID. Right. OK. Yeah. So I wasn't I wasn't sure how how to pitch this at the beginning initially anyway, because obviously with what, what, you, what you do, you'll, you'll be there'll be loads of different things you'll be doing with regards to quantifying risk. But um, I've got a few questions here and hopefully these will just set off the rule. But please talk about whatever it is you, you, you want to get out there, what message. But um, so a lot of the predictions and estimates were made relating to the COVID-19 outbreak and its transmission. Um, did you have any insight into the modelling that was performed? Yeah, so um, I had some insight uh, into the original models, you know, that came from Imperial College. Um, I don't want to say too much about those because there's been a lot said about them and they, they essentially massively exaggerated the, you know, the risk of COVID. Well, they, they were massively exaggerating the, the fatality, the risk of fatality from COVID. And initially our work did actually focus on understanding what the true uh, inf you know, infection fatality rate was and what the true kind of like infection rate was because we saw early on that and, and this is at the time this was not considered particularly controversial <laughs> we when we looked at when we used our kind of like bayesian these sort of bayesian techniques uh, to understand the data what we found was that the fatality rate was initially massively exaggerated, i.e. that's the, the probability that a person who gets, who is infected with COVID dies from it. That was massively exaggerated. While at the same time, the infection rate, i.e. how many people who actually had this virus, or infected this virus, was actually underestimated. So our initial work was using these kind of like Bayesian statistical methods to clarify uh, and improve on the estimates that, that were um, on those things. And they were, of course, very different from the, the kind of like the scaremongering data that was coming out of coming out of Imperial and other and other places like that. So right from the beginning, we, we were concerned that the let's say the, the, the seriousness of the of the pandemic was 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 exaggerated. Right. Well, yeah, we, I think that's one thing we could all agree on, isn't it? But that's two years down the line. Yeah. So was it, was it quite 
obvious. So when did you get access to this data that, that started leading you down? The, the, so we, so, okay, so interesting enough, we, we were, although I was working, I mean, one of the reasons why, uh, let's say, I um, was involved in this kind of data analysis in the beginning was that I was leading a large research project, which was all about improved decision-making and medical data with sort of evidence-based medicine, that, that type of thing. We were looking at um, uh, decision-making and improved diagnosis and stuff like that, things like chronic uh, conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, heart uh, conditions, stuff like that. So we were we had a large collaborative project with, with clinicians and stuff like that. So we were really kind of like tuned into this whole kind of like medical data at research and at analytics. But the the COVID data, we were, although we did actually apply in, in many cases to get, let's say, more of the um, non-public data that was being used, we were never particularly, uh, we never, we, we essentially never relied on that. Actually, I think, I think only in a couple of cases did we ever get data that wasn't actually in the public domain. So we were using data that was in the public domain and you know that that includes you know the, all the sort of the government dashboard data whether it be the uh, and that also includes like the nhs dashboard which interesting enough was very different the data coming out of that which is an interesting thing was very different to the stuff that was published on the government covid dashboard website which is the one that you know all of the media every day would showing these graphs, you know, massively increasing case numbers and all that sort of stuff, in, in, increasing death numbers. And also you're looking at other, you know, there's sort of our world in data, so get, get data on other countries. Um, sometimes we were getting information sent to us because of what, what we were doing that maybe was, 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 wasn't as public. So that's the kind of data that we were, that we were looking at. And, the thing that changed where so initially, um, I say what we were doing, we were getting published in, in peer-reviewed journals. This initial stuff about sort of case fatality rates, it wasn't particularly, it wasn't considered particularly, um, uh, let's say, controversial at the time. But where things, when things changed, was when uh, I guess about late summer of two thousand twenty, when the introduction of mass PCR testing, in particular for, for what people didn't realize, that the mass testing was being done not mainly on people with symptoms at that time, because that was the kind of like the easing of the first lockdown. So people were going back to work and school, et cetera. So they started to introduce a lot of testing of asymptomatic people. You know, you needed to get tested, you know, needed to show that you're negative in order to go to work, that kind of thing. That's when things completely changed and that's when we realized i mean we were really suspicious about the political nature of the narrative which was driving the lockdowns so it was very i was never never comfortable with that i was always um totally against that because we'd already shown that the that the, the you know the the virus was nothing like as as, as deadly as as was being made out but with this mass testing here's the key thing right first of all it assumed that the PCR test or lateral flow tests were were accurate, which they're not. Okay, I mean, I can go into people aren't. And again, there's issues about people are. There's massive misunderstandings about about the the, the inaccuracy, which I which I actually would like to to mention. But setting that aside, except for the moment, these tests were um, they're not not particularly accurate. 
okay, especially for asymptomatic people. Uh, essentially, most people who are asymptomatic testing positive do not have the virus, right, and won't go on to get the virus either. So what you're getting, what you had was that you had this massive increase in uh, numbers tested. You know, at one point we were testing something like over, you know, at that period we started to get towards a sort of million a day being tested. So, and the more you test, given these, you know, the number of false positives amongst the asymptomatics, the more cases you're going to find. And of course, it's not just cut. And, and so you saw these massively increasing curves of, of case numbers. And also because, because, a COVID death and a hospitalisation. And of course, the way COVID deaths are defined is anybody who anybody who dies for whatever reason, who with, within 28 days of death had a positive PCR test. That's irrespective of how they died, whether it was a car accident, whether it was a heart attack, whatever. They're classified as they were they were in those numbers of COVID, COVID classified deaths. Same with hospitalizations. Anybody that hospitalizations is even worse. Because with hospitalizations, it's it's you know, so like two, if you were two, if you were PCR positive, irrespective of the reason for hospital entry, you know, 14 days before entry, and then any time during hospitalization for whatever condition you've got, and of course they were testing them, you know, all the time in hospital, right? Again, massively inflated hospital numbers. So you're seeing all this stuff going up. And all we did was look at <laughs> we did the, the radical act of, of 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 dividing two numbers, which was the number of cases by the number of tests and when you looked at the difference between just so instead of just look you know where you actually looked at the rate you know when you took account of the numbers tested rather than just the absolute numbers you didn't see these massively increasing curves there was some sort of slight there was a slight increase you know towards the end of, of 2020 but this so-called mass second wave you know which um just prior to the sort of the vaccination uh, campaign, which happened sort of the winter of 2020 and then early 21, that 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 was massive. That, that just you know, the, the, when you look at all, when you look at all other indicators, that was an unbelievable massive exaggeration, right? And the the the, the simplest indicator of that is actually instead of looking at that, I say the COVID dashboard from the government was showing these ridiculous peaks, you know, much higher, incidentally, much higher than the the original peak of, of March, April, when we had the real, you know, uh, you know, sort of pandemic when people were genuinely dying. Of course, a, a lot of that was to do with mismanagement and not understanding that there were early treatment protocols and stuff like that. But there were, you know, that that in the early, you know, March, April 2020, you had the you had the real sort of COVID pandemic and deaths. But that but the twen the end of 2020 and that that's that winter and early 21, despite the the dashboard showing we had this much, it showed it as a much more serious pandemic than the first, a much greater wave than the first wave. That was what, I mean, everybody believed that. Everybody thought this second wave was much worse than the first. But actually, if you look at the, the NHS dashboard, as opposed to the COVID government COVID dashboard, the NHS had a, has a dashboard of not of, of, um, of, of, of um, COVID triages, right? So, Hospital calls one 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 nine nine nine. If even if you just focus on the nine 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 calls and ambulance uh, calls, and that were actually ambulances were were involved on COVID triages. So this is people who are saying we we these are people who are genuinely serious who are genuinely seriously ill with with COVID like symptoms. That's it. If you look at the dashboard there, what you see is that in 
in March, April 2020, you do get a real peak, right? But then he goes on to the winter where there's supposed massive, much bigger second peak goes. And it's, and it's, it's nothing more than just the usual respiratory increase, you know, seasonal respiratory increase in these things. There's nothing there. There was nothing there, right? So you've got that mismatch between what the, you know, the real COVID triage data is showing you and what these ridiculous PCR-driven uh, data uh, on the government, uh, you know, on the government dashboard. So, okay, a couple of questions then. <clears throat> Can you just go back and explain to me what the, is it a, the Bayesian technique is for finding out just just for those of us that aren't au fait with yes yeah, so, so, so here, here, here's I'll give you um this also explains this whole thing about um uh you know the false positives Let, let's uh, in fact because Bayes reason is a perfect example when you look at the COVID PCR testing let's suppose I'll give you some these aren't the exact figures because I can give you some other information about it just for simplicity mm-hmm. let's suppose that the test is, um, for people who've got the virus, I suppose the test will always give you positive. It doesn't, but it doesn't actually matter very much when it comes to this analysis. So let's, and let's suppose that there's a small probability, let's suppose a 1% chance that a person without the virus, who hasn't got the virus, wrongly tests positive. Okay, so that's what people normally think, that's a 1% false positive rate, that there's a 1% chance you test positive even if you haven't got the virus. So the question is, if you test positive, what's the probability you've got the virus? Now, most people assume, well, hang on a sec, if there's a 1% probability that you um, test positive if you haven't got the virus, then surely there's a night, if you if you test positive, they'll think there's a 99% probability you've got the that you must have the virus if you test positive, because there's only a tiny chance of it, of it getting it wrong. Most people think that. No. What Bayesian reasoning says, you have to take account of what the underlying infection rate is amongst in the population. So let's suppose that we're testing asymptomatic people and that therefore that you've got this 1% false positive rate. Well, actually, let's in general, many times during this um, in fact, many times a typical the typical infection rate would be amongst the population, maybe one in a thousand at any one time has the virus. So here's the thing. If one in a thousand um, has the virus, imagine you test 10,000 people. Then because about one in a thousand has the virus, about 10 will test positive correctly. Right. They will be they will correctly. They will. Sorry, they have the virus. They'll test positive. So you've got 10 people out of the 10,000 who have the virus. They're testing positive. But because of that one percent false positive rate, you've got nine. What is it? And you've got uh, um, nine thousand um, nine hundred ninety people who haven't got the virus. So just under 10,000 because you only had 10 who had it. So just under 10,000 people don't have the virus. Well, if 1% of those test positive, and that's what happens, then that's about 100 people who haven't got the virus who test positive. So out of that 10,000, we've got 10 people, about 10 people who have the virus testing positive, and about 100 who don't have the virus testing positive. So strip away everybody who, who tests negative. It's, we've left with 110 people who test positive, of whom only 10 have the virus. So if you've got, if you test positive, 
there's actually less than a 10% chance that you have the virus. And people, this that is that is essentially a, that's an informal explanation of Bayes' theorem. Bayes will do that those calculations accurately. And we found, and the crucial thing is, people say, well, that's just theoretical. We don't know. No, actually, we here's an example of public data that we used, which nailed this problem. Right? You know, we we looked at there was this massive there was this extensive study of asymptomatic students at Cambridge University that was done between the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. That's the period we looked at it, right? So they were testing, they were testing thousands of students every week. Okay. And over the and what they were doing, they were they were doing this PCR so-called pooled testing. So they would test about typically three or four, three to five students typically who live together in the same group. They they were they 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 got a pooled sample, and those so it, they were they were testing that that they were testing that pooled sample. So that instead of so, if for example, you know, ten thousand students might be tested, but if um, if there's five five in the pooled testing, then there'll be two thousand of these pooled samples. But you're still testing ten thousand students. Mm. If if any of the if a pooled sample tested positive then the assumption is that at least one of the students, so it's three or five, three to five, will be positive in that sample. And so what they then did for any, because there was a fairly small number, very, very small number testing positive, they would then take that, they would take, they would retake the samples, the because indiv they, the individual students had contributed the sample. So instead of testing them in a pool, because that was easier to do. That was why they were doing it. It makes it much easier to do. You cut down on the costs. Then they would test the individual student samples, right? And you'd expect to find at least one of the, whether it was three to five, testing positive, you know. And, and But what they actually found was, was as follows. There were actually, over the period we looked at it, over the about 10,000 um, pooled samples in, in total, 43 of the pooled samples tested positive. Right. So it's a very, very low number who do test positive. Right. But of those 43, 36 of those pooled samples, when they did them individually, there was no positives in them at all. So 36 out of the 43 were false positives. Right. And that that actually. So that's like well over 80 percent. And that kind of like that that matches the sort of the, the, the theoretical um assumption that matches the kind of like theoretical predictions we were making, you know, using Bayes. So in practice, you know, the hard empirical evidence is that is that the vast majority of people without symptoms who are testing positive with PCR tests are are not, you know, are, do not mm. do not have the virus and don't go on to get it either. So what was that as an overall kind of rough percentage of false positive? Because I know the number Initially, it was only, like you say, about 1%, 0.5, and then it went up to about 7 and then it was anywhere between 20 and 60 Yeah, because they're confusing. They're confusing the, 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 the so-called the false positive test rate, which is the percentage of people who don't have the virus to test positive, with the percentage of people who test positive who have the virus. That, that's, the, that's the base. It's, it's, it makes clear the difference between those, those two things. There's a difference between the, the probability of testing positive 
if you don't have the virus is different to probability that you don't have the virus if you test positive. It's this so-called, it's what we call an inverted conditional. People assume those are the same, but they're not. Okay, so the the false the test false positive rate is, is still very low, right? Actually, it's probably less than 1%, right? right? So, and people who said, oh, you're, it's rubbish. People who are claiming that this whole idea, most people testing, most symptomatics who are testing positive, they're false positive, saying that's rubbish because we know the test is accurate. We know it's less than 1%, but it is. But that doesn't mean that the proportion of people who, um, who are asymptomatic, who test positive, is not is, is the same it's not it's very high so you've got as we showed in their example that very simple example i showed you one percent false positive test result but not over over in that case over 90 percent of people who test positive way symptomatic don't have the virus right, right. they're two right. different figures they're two different probabilities and politicians even many you know, medics don't understand the difference between those two things and the difference between those two things is everything right and it's driven, it's, you know, so people are just convinced that that is, it, people just, because people don't understand that difference, catastrophic policy decisions have been made as a result. But yeah, that, that's probably one of the biggest understatements of the last two years I've ever heard, but very tactfully done. Um, okay, um, another another question that ties into the to the first one then. Um, so, what were the conference levels? Yeah, so I mean, I think that you you said that you were getting some most of the data you were getting was was in the public domain. Yeah. Was that because you had lack of confidence in the data that was being provided to you from the government, or was it just hard uh, easier to get data? Oh, from the, the thing is, the thing is, when I say in the public domain, that is mainly that is mainly government data. And and, and I right. should say here, to be fair, the British government, right, and the Office for National Statistics, compared with other countries in the world, right, were providing let's say much more extensive data. Than is available so because i've been involved in kind of like uh, legal cases looking at, uh, at covid data in other countries and i can tell you that that um the, the the uk data is is more extensive in terms of like especially when it came on to um the vaccination program you know the 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 the, the, the kind of details that were provided there were 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 much more extensive than other countries that doesn't mean it's more it's it's accurate in fact, a lot of our work after starting from 2021 was actually exposing massive flaws in the UK Office for National, the Office for National Statistics data. That data was driving all of the narrative about, for example, how effective the vaccines were. And that data was fundamentally flawed because of things like misclassification of the vaccination status. Of people and also not counting, um, uh, um, underestimating the population number of people in the population who are unvaccinated, and those two things massively skew. It means that anything that anything coming from the ONS about uh, vaccine effectiveness and safety is completely wrong. It's completely flawed. We've we've sh we've demonstrated this absolutely categorically, and it boils down. It all comes down to the fact that primarily people who um people who well, when it comes to the effectiveness of the uh vaccine they don't count they they say well a vaccine can't be considered even to be effective until it's given you know, at least 14 days after that dose okay so any people getting covid within that period are not classified as vaccinated 
Well, and similarly with the subsequent dose, well, that already massively skews the data. If you're taking, we, we've shown how this, it's almost a statistical certainty that you'll get higher vaccine effectiveness because of that policy, because of that policy, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you've got that. But actually, um, when it comes to, when it comes to mortality, and in particular, interest in all-cause mortality, not just mortality from COVID, because if the vaccines are as safe, if, if, if COVID is as deadly as claimed, and if the vaccines are as safe as claimed, then what you should be seeing over a long period of time is that the all-cause mortality amongst the vaccinated should be lower than amongst the unvaccinated. So we were focusing on that, that thing, right? And it turns out there that, again, the ONS data, which has claimed that, that that you do get that, you do see that benefit, that risk benefit of the vaccine. No, it's it's fundamentally flawed because in that case, they are claim in that case, they are claiming that anybody who dies after a vaccination dose, shortly afterwards, they're claiming that they are classifying them as, as vaccinated, right? But it's actually not the case. We've we we have we have definitively shown that. Their data is not, they are that people who are dying shortly after vaccination, from whatever cause, COVID or otherwise, in the first, at least the first 14 days, those people are generally omitted from the, from the people who are classified as vaccinated. So they're either classified as unvaccinated or they're not counted at all. And again, so you've got this massive skewing. And when you, once you take account, once you take account, once you do the statistical adjustments, which is what we've done. In, in our analysis, once you take account the statistical adjustment, once you do the adjustment for that error in classification, you find there is no there is no um, uh, all cause mortality benefit in, in the vaccine, right? It makes, in fact, if anything, if anything, there might be a there might be a small increase. I'm not I'm not claiming that that, that you know the vaccines are killing massive numbers of people. They certainly are causing. Um, small, they certainly are causing serious adverse reactions, which are not being taken, you know, which are which are not being widely discussed. We've got that, and certainly disproportionately high uh, numbers of, of 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 serious adverse reactions in the young. But, but the numbers are still low because they're coming from a low base. But they are still causing problems. But overall, overall, I'd say that there's there's no there's no all cause mortality benefit in the vaccines. If anything, if anything, there does seem to be a small let's say, it blip, a small increase in all-cause mortality of the vaccinated shortly after vaccination. It's not a massive number, right? But so the suggestion is the vaccines may actually be doing more, more harm than, than, than good from the data. So the idea of, so again, vaccine mandates, all of that stuff, um, even, for, even, for the, even for the elderly, uh, the, the data is not, doesn't really suggest there's, 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 any, there's any real... Um, or cause mortality benefit. Have you tried shouting about this sort of data to, to the relevant parties and things, or have you just been met with kind of like, you know, stonewalling and stuff? So so I have, first of all, all of our paper, after, when we did that radical step of, of, of doing, of, of dividing the number of cases by the number of tests, and from that point on, all our, I got labelled as a COVID denier, not a vac- not an anti-vax then because vax wasn't in, wasn't even there then. But I got labelled as a as a COVID denier simply for showing, and also when we were talking about the problems with the PCR tests and data associated with that, um, I got 
yeah, I got basically censored. All, from that point on, none of our none of our papers. I mean, I'm very very widely published. I've got over something I think 400 publications in you know most of them peer reviewed journals. And even early on in COVID, we had I've, I had like three or four, well more than that, about five properly peer reviewed journals published articles in peer reviewed journals published, which were not considered controversial. You're looking at general risk and impact of different risk factors on COVID, that sort of stuff, uh, impact of different um, ethnicities and that that, that, that that kind of thing. Didn't get, that was all getting published fine. But as soon as in September, from September, 2020, as soon as I started to raise these issues about the problems with the public, with the, with the data and the narrative associated, associated with it being driven by the ridiculous PCR testing, completely censored never got my even even the papers weren't even uh accepted on preprint servers the only the only place we could get we can get our um message out apart from blogs and, and, and twitter where i'm not censored is on uh, uh, there's a there's a uh, a, a preprint server called researchgate now interesting enough the papers that we've had on researchgate get unbelievable number of downloads like half and we had like for our one we did on the the vaccine adverse reactions data got sort of two hundred thousand downloads but the, the first paper we did on the ons data highlighting the miscategorization of vaccine um of vac- of, of people dying shortly after vaccination that has had that and its subsequent iterations are, are up to close to a million downloads which is many orders of magnitude reason you get in the in the in the mainstream in, in the sort of peer-reviewed journal so i'm not particularly i'm, I'm quite happy until they while well, they still let us publish there and, and they're starting actually to censor papers there as well but uh, and, and until they until they take those down um i'm perfectly happy to you know i'm you know the thing is i'm in a fort- slightly fortunate position that let's say i'm close closer to retirement than most academics so i have the let's say more of a more freedom to speak I, you know i've got my i've had my research career it's a sort of a you know well-established research career i don't particularly need to have any more you know peer-reviewed uh publications in in, in this area so I'm not, I'm not particularly bothered by it so you know but i've come in for enormous censorship i mean i went so i mean i have been on i've done lots of podcasts like this um um so my message has gone out. I've been on, um, you know, I mean, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I've been on uh, the, you know, um, the High Wire with Del Bigtree, you know, um, Imagine the Waz done. In fact, it was, it was very shortly after my interview of Imagine the Waz that he got taken off of, uh, he got, uh, he got sacked from LBC. Well, I'm not suggesting there was a cause and effect there, but it was when he was, it was when he started to interview people like me that he had, that he had the problems talking about, um uh and i've been on i've been on gb news i mean i was interviewed by nigel farage and stuff like that although again interestingly there they i know i'm officially classified as an anti-vaxxer i'm up on gb news so i'm no longer persona so even there where you know where i I think three times since i was due to due to appear and then the last minute they decided that they, they wouldn't have me on and on one occasion, as I know, because one of my colleagues I work with, Claire Craig, was quite well known, quite outspoken. She does lots of oh, Dr. Claire Craig. Sorry, 
Dr. Claire Craig. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Claire. Yeah, I had her on. I had her on this show. Yeah, yeah. I think it was uh, last week. I had her on as well. Right. Yeah, she's really nice. She's lovely. A really good. She's show. great. She does. So, so for example, we were both both we were both supposed to be on. I think it was on the new uh, sort of on the Neil Oliver show actually or something. For they were having a sort of a round table. Then I got. Then they said, "Oh no, we we, we can't have you on because we can't have more than one anti-vaxxer." <laughs> so Claire was also classified wow. as an anti-vaxxer. On me, so yeah. <laughs> I never had any views on vaccination. Still, you know, the thing is, I don't have any. All I'm showing is that the, the this particular vaccination, um, uh, the data doesn't suggest that it's high for safe or effective. Other, it's uh, not particularly safe and, and definitely not effective. I mean, no, hundred percent. And this is what strikes me as being strange when you've got so many different people in different varied professions, which is why I wanted to get yourself on because obviously I didn't want it. It's good to have chats with people from other you know, areas and sectors regarding this um, is the lack of debate. And you've got yeah. all these people that know what they're doing saying, look, this ain't right. We need to have grown up conversations and talks about it. And and then you just get labeled, like you say, an anti-vaxxer, which just yeah. kind of shuts the argument down. Exactly. There's no debate. There's, um, you know, I mean, I can't go into all of the details, but the, the, the censorship from sort of other academics, in fact, the way other way academics behaved, during this whole process, it it, it makes me, it, it kind of like disgusts me. I'm, I'm actually disgusted by the profession that, 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 that I'm in because of the, um, not just the censorship, the closed-mindedness, you know, um, it's, it's actually appalling. And the fact that academics of all people are supposed to be sort of the most sort of progressive, you know, that sort of progressive members of society, always looking after the underdog, you know, as the sort of the working class, those, you know, it was prominent academics more than anybody else who drove the whole sort of lockdown narrative, the importance of social distancing, all that nonsense. And we're happy to have, you know, police interventions, you know, come around at people's houses to stop, you know, uh, social mixing. But it was them, who drew, it was academics, you know, not even people who actually had the qualifications to even um, understand the implications, not to understand why, it should be done like this and what the implications were. You had these sort of psychologists and, you know, epidemiologists who, you know, who actually are not much more than sort of glorified mathematicians, or whatever, you know, they, they have a particular, they have a, had a particular political narrative, which this, you know, they wanted this, this sort of, con, this control, you know, and who were the people most, you know, they're, so they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, thinking lockdowns are great, you know, and it's, this is the way forward, you know, they're sitting in, most of them in their sort of, you know, they're quite sort of middle class, you know, houses and gardens. And it's the, you know, not caring about the fact that, you know, the people who are delivering their stuff, as it were, you know, <laughs> haven't got the, you know, haven't got the comfort of being able to sit at home on, you know, on furlough or whatever and all that nonsense, right? And it was mm. the, it's the fact that it's the, you know, it's the working, you know, again, the working class people, you know, the most, the least privileged in society were the most badly affected by these ludicrous policies that these so-called progressive academics were pushing on every everybody. Yeah, they, they and, they, and the fact that they're not prepared to have debates about it. You know, people like me, you know, I say complete sentence. I used to, I mean, because of the work I mentioned I was doing with them um, on our um, research project before, of course, most of our, you know, I've got enormous number of colleagues in the medical school at uh, Queen Mary. And, you know, so we've got, most of our collaborations were, were medics. I was giving talks to, you know, medics, you know, on the sort of the Bayesian data analysis for sort of improved medical decision making, you know, giving those talks sort of all the time, you know, but since this, since 
September 2020. Again, persona grata. I'm, you know, I've been cancelled from all of those types of um, forum. Not, you know, just absolutely not allowed to talk. The only, the only, I've done lots of, you know, say, um, podcasts and seminars, but it's always been to people who are already sympathetic mm. to this, this out, let's say, our narrative rather than the, rather than the government's narrative. So you don't, the question is, there is a danger, there is the inevitable danger that we're just always speaking to the, you know, preaching to the converted. Yeah. It's that groupthink mentality, isn't it? I think there's a yeah. book that I've read called, um, oh, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but it basically talks about um, if you if you have an idea and you're trying to see whether it's going to work, it's imperative that you get people from all different ethnicities, all different walks of life, races, creeds, because they will come in and then they will look at things from different perspectives. If you surround yeah. yourself with people that think the same, you're not going to have anyone objected uh, or objecting to, to any kind of things that might be going forward because they're all on the same sort of page. So, yeah. the, you know, the, the more variety of um, perceptions you can get for these sort of problems, the, 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 you know, the, the, the best likelihood of it being successful. Um, the, what, okay, so the one thing I wanted to talk about is, well, obviously, so the government specialises in risk, obviously. That's, that's, that's their kind of, well, they don't specialise in risk, but, you know, how much of government policy and decision-making is truly led by risk? They've got uh, a very poor and crude understanding of risk, in, in, in my view. Just look at the, the, the policy, just look at the, 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 the lockdown decisions, right? That should have been a fully quantified, you know, if you'd want to do a fully quantified risk assessment there, you also have, you have to balance up the risks with the, the, the risks and benefits, okay? Um, they were only, it was, it was all, everything was driven instead of looking at the, you know, the downsides, instead of looking at what the, you know, the implications, all of the kind of like societal implications, uh, implications for, you know, children's education, all that, instead of, instead of properly doing a, what we would do is a fully sort of call, we would have a, we would do, in fact, we did these things, we did it for the, um, that sort of lockdowns you have you need what you need is a is a full sort of causal model where all of the variables right both those which are um the negative and positive outcomes of a lockdown and the costs all have to be integrated together in a, in a causal model. You, and you have to look at the difference in the you know what the impact is of the decisions on all of these different on all of these different factors they never did that they never did mm. that they simply just decided that the risk of, of they just looked at, at the risk you know single focus the risk of covid on number of people dying from covid right and at that time as we know it was massively exaggerated and they just they just had this incredibly simplistic notion well if we lock down we're going to reduce that number did not look they simply did not consider the massive negative other negative implications of not they only looked at the single positive impact on on COVID death numbers. That was it. Nothing else, right? And that is that kind of like single attribute approach to risk assessment is very much what you know the government does. You know that that's how there's a classic. You know, a lot of I mean, all of our research is about a much more informed and causal approach to risk assessment than the classic approaches that governments. Use you know their their view is risk. Their view is it's the simplest approach. Risk equals they call probability times impact. But they're just looking at the probability of a, one single risk 
times its impact instead of the fact you've got all these interrelated factors which are impacting on on different types of um, risk and, and 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 they have these very very different outcomes and different costs and they they I say I've been working I mean look to be fair one of the things I, I do work with other government agencies I mean we've got um, you know we work with the safety with the um, office for product safety standards for example and those those guys they are alert to the fact that their traditional risk assessment pr- approaches don't really are over are over simplicity and don't really work because of these same these sort of same reasons so you know for things like you know product safety recalls right you know when you in a sense it's a bit like lockdowns when do you make a decision about you know about recalling a product whether it's a you know an unsafe washing machine or something like that you know because there might have been uh, problems with you know a, a few of them caught fire well you, you see at what point do you say right well let's let's just let's just stop use of all of these of all of these things it's a, actually again even there they realize there's a lot of uncertainty a lot of other factors which need to be taken account of before you know before you do a, a product recall so we're doing these kind of like causal bayesian methods they understand that you need that better that kind of more slightly more sophisticated you know more holistic approach there but Generally, generally, the government's approach, as was as was clear, <laughs> clearly shown by the whole sort of COVID uh, during the whole this this sort of whole COVID era, has been an oversimplistic, you know, single focus approach to risk. And it's been it's interesting because the uh, an environmental well a, a biological kind of viral virological can't speak a virus threat. Uh, has been on the risk register since what 2008 it's it's not a new thing yeah. that, that the yeah. government has been made aware of um so and they knew and, and lockdowns were never part of the were never part of the response to it so why do you think they made such such um a mess of it all then i mean and in lockstep with all the other world governments oh, well, i mean this is where you get onto the so you know the, so this is where <laughs> the conspiracy theories come in which seem to be increasingly leading sort of conspiracy facts look I'll tell you a, a story about this. But the first, do you know, the first time I ever even heard about the Great Reset was actually when I was on a uh, a podcast very early on, before I was considered to be a, a, a COVID or anything like that, in those early days of COVID, early summer of 2020, when I was sort of part of the mainstream and considered to be a respected voice on, on COVID data and stuff like that. I was, let's say, on a. I was in on a panel. I won't say what it was, but I can actually give you the, the link. But I don't want to. I don't want to sort of incriminate people. But I was on a panel with three other people talking about this. It was all about the the um, the, the state, you know, COVID, and where we are, and what's the, what does the world do from here. All the other academics. Every one of those. Every one of those people used spoke about the great reset i was completely i was completely astonished by this right um and they spoke about the great reset and they they were saying this is the great opportunity to improve the world they were talking at that point there were there were members of that panel who thought it was the, the lockdown was fantastic because they're saying this is fantastic fun we've got to keep this up you know we've we've reduced all these carbon emissions you know just in these few weeks since lockdown right they were I was astonished that they that they were pushing this 
this narrative and so you know I, I did find out a bit more about it and it is absolutely clear that the great reset and the whole build back better that lock stop it, it is driven by there's no doubt it was driven by this kind of globalist you know world world economic forum um un agenda 2030 and it all it, it's all there in the open that to say this is conspiracy they're completely open about this narrative and and my concern after that given that they were people saying this, it wasn't me saying this, is that, that the, the COVID lockdowns were just going to be a precursor for sort of climate lockdowns. And that seems to be the narrative that's being driven now. Hmm. That's why this whole thing, you know, it seems like, you know, the COVID, and also not just that, it's not just the, the lockdowns, it's the fact that it leads into this whole idea of sort of, uh, you know, one world, sort of digital currency and, um yeah, so that that kind of like global control. I mean, the digital currency to get in, get into a sort of a digital currency, a digital passport, international digital passport. You need effectively for people to sort of buy into all that stuff. Yeah. You need to have things like the vaccine status, right? so people would feel that they they had to get the, the COVID vaccine in order to sign up to to get their passport, right? You need you sort of that's all needed to feed into that kind of like agenda of the you know the 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 the, the, the digital currency and the and the international digital id which ultimately leads to control and you know and it's all about control of your carbon footstep etc making sure that you you know that, that, that in the long term I mean, they're very open about uh, restricting air and car travel that's a massive part of the massive, massive part of the same agenda mm. and for that you need this control you need this this type of this digital control did it take you long to, to to kind of obviously, you know, sometimes in these journeys, you fall into rabbit holes by mistake. And sometimes other people mention things to, to then set you off on, on on the little trail. Did it take you long once you started delving into to the... To no, because, it, because I was astonished at how much it was in the open and yet how much... <laughs> it is it's everywhere, isn't it? How much, and, and the fact that the fact that there are, there are people out there who actually don't, you know, people call you... Cons- Conspiracy theorists, but they actually don't believe there is a person called Klaus Schwab. That they think it's all made up. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding you. I've had people say that that's a fantasy. There's no no such no such person, no such organisation as the World Economic Forum, or it's just a nothing. It's of no significance whatsoever, you know. And yet, just read their stuff. Just look at their you know their videos. They've been completely out in the open. They have been absolutely. It's been absolutely clear that they you know that a lot of this. That, that you know much of the COVID narrative has been uh, always manufactured very early on, and even before, of course, the official uh, pandemic started, because they had their 2019 planning, you know, simulation, and all that kind of stuff. And then you know, and it's all out there, but people are just unwilling. You know, the, the media won't report on it because they're basically they're effectively bought out. You know, they've been. That the main, you know, the uh, legacy media gets all its funding from effectively governments and Gates Foundation and stuff like that. So they're simply not allowed to, you know. Of course, it was it was actually as we know, it was actually not they weren't lawfully allowed um, over the last two years to to um, basically publicise any story which contradicted the World Health Organization, you know. Um, narrative on either the uh the virus or the vaccine Mm. so why okay so a couple of things then do you think there's going to be a currency collapse is you know with obviously your mathematical sort of 
prowess prowess do you think there's we're, we're gearing up for because obviously we've got the inflation and all that and they're blaming on the war in ukraine which those of us that have done some reading yeah. you know do you think there's going to be a, a currency collapse um yes I, I, I think i think we're in for a, a major i think we're in the start of a major financial crisis and i think that that but then you look at you look at the again what the world economic forum have been saying about this that's something you know that that's that's something that they 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 you know they need that type of crisis to move towards this system this 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 system of global gov governance that they that they they're seeking that's what worries it's that again there's a lot of this stuff is manufactured this crisis manufactured because it fits that need that's that's actually needed in order to meet that that long term globalist agenda do you think this is why they've got such hatred towards crypto because obviously crypto is is a is a potential route we need to go in regards to you know new currency that's not um can be yeah because they can't control it exactly exactly so they, they can't control that they want their own you know cryptocurrency so they, they right. want to have control they want to have control yeah tied yeah i have it all tied into your passport so they can so yeah. basically you want the, the similar sort of thing as what they've got in china at the minute with the social credit scoring system exactly exactly and, and you know many of the world leaders um especially those who were sort of former World Economic Forum young leaders, you know, the sort of the Trudeaus, Ardens of this world, they're, they're openly, openly um, stated that they, 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 they want a kind of like Chinese, you know, um, social credit uh, scoring system for their countries. They, they you know, they, they would welcome that. They're pushing towards that. And that's what the World Economic Forum is, is you know. Well, there are some sort of... There are some tensions because you get these weird disagreements, you know, between World Economic Forum and China. But actually, you know, Xi Jinping was actually sort of the guest of honor at the most recent WF conference. So, you know, I'm sure that any any um, minor personal difficulties are sort of have been ironed out. Why, why do you think there is such dissidence with people? I know in regards to like you said, it's easy to go out and just read it. Do you think it's a, a buyer's re regret kind of scenario if they find out they should have maybe not taken the jab or, you know, any idea why there's such dissonance? You mean sort of the cognitive dissonance whereby people just, well, it's, it's more than you, it's this whole thing. They, they, yeah, I think that they, especially if they've given it, if they've encouraged children to take the jab, they, they can't, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to accept that you've made a potentially even life-threatening you know, a decision. I mean, that it's it's it, it's a you know it's a major thing. You know, you get these. Of course, you get the sort of the you know this whole idea. Oh, I've been I've been you know triple jabs. Got even got a, an additional booster. Um, and I'm and I've and I've now got COVID. Thank God I had all those jabs. Otherwise, it would have been much worse. I mean, the, the, the insanity of the just you know. So that is cognitive distance. The insanity of it. It's. But that's the world. That's the world we're living in. I mean, there are unfortunately, you know, it's this as um, you know the mass formation stuff. I think that that's real. I think that Desmond was right about that. And and, and unfortunately, there's a, a solid something like I, I think as much as seventy percent of the population who are, are are into that, and nothing we can do, nothing that we can do, I say, will shake them out of it. I, I, it's impossible. There because are far, they should have shaken out of it. They are not shaken out of it by now. How how is it ever gonna? You know, you've got every possible. You know, with all of the the, the stuff on the, the the adverse reactions and, and, and all that stuff, it's, it's all going to be now put down to long COVID. They've already decided. Ah, oh, well, it's nothing to do with the vaccine. This is long COVID. 
So they've already people have accepted that. Nothing we can do about it. That's that is that is the that's the official narrative now. So where do you see us in sort of six months, twelve months, a year, uh, two years? Do you, are we still going to be? They're still going to be trying to push seasonal COVID boosters. You know, that, they, they will, but they're going to be gradually moving towards the, as I say, the, the, the sort of the the, the climate. Um, not, they wouldn't necessarily call it lockdown, but I mean, did you know in, in, in Klaus Schwab's book, The Great Reset? He actually he actually says very clearly that one of the one of the ramifications of the sort of COVID will be massively disrupted travel and mm. um, air travel and all of that. And 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 they clearly glow, they clearly glows about because they they actually <laughs> they don't want they don't want the plebs to be flying on aeroplanes or using cars. And so you're increasingly there's, there's pressure. You know they they now don't talk about climate change. They talk about climate emergency now. So it's all about it's and, and it's 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 become it's become a religion. I mean, it's it's, it's fun. you can't get away. The, you know, the mass media, the legacy media, is pushing this so hard. It's 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 incredible. Everything you know, you know, the, the drive towards moving people away from you know petrol cars and flying. It's it's phenomenal. It's going to get a lot worse. It's, that's that's where it's going. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it's There's no doubt about it. Yeah, and the twenty course the. Remember, they've officially said the 2050 agenda is that there'll only be th three airports, remember, in the UK, the whole of the UK. Right. Well, <laughs> they, really, they really don't want us going on holiday, do they? And I no. don't think they realise what, what the British people will do if we can't get our uh, two weeks yeah. in Benidorm. <laughs> yeah. So I've got two more questions to ask you because I'm conscious of, of yeah. your time, which I do appreciate. Um, the first one is I just want to go back. So obviously you said you, you, you're dealing with some legal cases in other countries. Can you talk about them in any capacity or, or, or not? Um, yeah, I mean, most of them I've done cases in. So most of them. So one in uh, New Zealand, which didn't in the end didn't, didn't succeed, was um, again against the vaccine mandate. There's one in Canada, which is sort of still ongoing, also about um you know, trying to stop the vaccine uh, mandate in, in in certain provinces. Um, one that will be, I can speak a bit more about because it's going to be the first, I think it might even be the very first public open court session to look at the whole um, issue of um, the uh, the seriousness of COVID and the, uh, the, the vaccine safety and efficacy is taking place in... Uh, Indonesia in a couple of weeks' time, and that's an op that's open. I said that's open call. I'll be I'll be giving uh, evidence um, by Zoom, and the people who are um, behind that case that, that they are saying that is actually the first. They think that's the first case in the world where, course, there's been sort of hearings, you know, Senate hearings. Mm. That sort of thing. Those are not court cases. They have no um, they have no sort of legal binding. But this is actually you know a proper case um against uh, um i guess it's against the indonesian government um vaccine mandate or whatever that's going to be an open call with witnesses um providing evidence in open call and and that's going to be available to the public that's going to be it's all going to be filmed and available yeah available to the public so that i think that happened on 29th of june okay so why do you think you're getting more kind of uh traction with Fighting this kind of narrative, or the you know, the kind I don't. Of I'm not saying this. We are getting more. 
But I think I was, oh, I mean, I was also involved. I also provide an affidavit for the Sam White case, which again failed here. I mean, most of these cases have failed. That's the problem. I was never really confident about a lot of these cases. And, you know, all of the ones, I say most of the ones in UK, Australia, I've done in Australia as well. Most of New Zealand, Australia, UK, Canada, those are the ones I've been involved in some of those. As far as I'm aware, those have, you know, let's say, have, have, have really gone nowhere. Is that because of the Commonwealth kind of the legal system, the way yeah. it's all made up? Think? Yeah, but I say so. So the most promising, well, it's gone. The fact that the Indonesian case has already gone much further because now it's actually going to be heard in open court. The others never got that far, right? So, so I wouldn't say I wouldn't say made massive strides, but this is one. This is a a chip in the you know a chip in the arm, as it were. We only need one usually, don't you, to set the precedent for the for the yeah, rest. Yeah, but then they'll say, ah, oh, well, Indonesia, that doesn't matter. You know, that you get that kind of like. Yes. Like that, that progressive racism will come in on that one. Yeah. <laughs> we're British. We're brilliant at that, aren't we? To be yeah. honest with you. I mean, let's, we, we, we've got hundreds of years of experience at being... Uh, yeah. Oh, incidentally, I'm, of course, uh, for some reason, you know, being, um, having my, this, this stance, I've also, you know, I've actually been called, if you look on Twitter, I've been called like not just an anti-vaxxer, but a racist for being, having this sort of position because, you know, it's associated with the extreme right according to, you know, according to these people. Do you think there will ever be a case in England or or something? Do you, or do you just think they just will shut it down? I know there's been multiple. Interesting I saw that I saw just a couple of days. I think last Friday, the I can't remember the name of the woman, but the first, the, at least the first case of um, it was that woman that whose husband I think it was called something like Zion or something like that, who was who was killed by the AstraZeneca vaccine. She's yeah. actually now officially officially recognised that that was a vaccine caused death, and she's got the the, the stat the, 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 that that statutory one hundred twenty thousand pound payout right on that so that's a, an acknowledgement that that's the first formal acknowledgement effectively by the government of of vaccine caused death mm. um, what I'd like to see but I I'm not sure it's ever going to happen is a is a is a, a full kind of like uh, inquest into the all of those uh, policymakers who, who who drove the narrative for, for the lockdowns and and the vaccines, you know that. But I don't think that's ever going to. I just don't think that's. I think it's just going to be this. You know, we, it's going to be covered up. You know, in, in, and then in thirty years' time, thirty years' time, it will be revealed that everything, you know, everything they did was was wrong and probably illegal, and these people should have been in prison rather than rather than being awarded with knighthoods and cbes and stuff like that which is what's happened yeah no i was going to say like like the whole jimmy savile type of incident yeah, yeah. It's, it's um yeah when, I, you I look at, when you look at when you look at the people now some of them are medical professionals academics who are pushing the, the vaccine on on infants now saying you this is fantastic we've now got that is absolute that's where i say in years to come but unfortunately, probably after the, the people are pushing this are dead, that th those people will be seen to have been you know, effectively, you know, I mean, not murders, because not, I'm not suggesting a lot of people, not, uh, it's not the case that a lot of, I'm not suggesting that babies and infants are going to sort of suddenly drop dead, but it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's a small number are going to affect it, but it's a totally unnecessary small number because one of the things that, again, people don't understand this, the extent to which the risk of, children for anybody under the age of 18 dying from covid people are so misunderstand that risk because they, they know it's low but they don't know how low it is and in fact 
in the UK in, in 2000, in the whole of 2020, there was a paper on this, a, very, a rigorous paper where they actually looked at every single case of someone actually going into hospital and ICU and then dying of COVID who was under the age of 18. And they and it was the numbers were were much lower than numbers for flu in previous years. Mm. Right. But the critical thing was, I think that every single the tiny number and we're talking, I think it was it was certainly under it was certainly under uh, I've got the data here, but it was like a handful. And every one of those had a criti had critical comorbidities. Yes. Yeah, that's what and I meant. People say, oh, only I think even people tweet about very few, you know, just a handful of children without comorbidities have died. No, in 2020, there was not a single child in the whole of the UK, and that means under 18, not one, not one without serious comorbidities who died purely because of COVID. I heard and it was like nine or something. It was a really low number, wasn't it? You know, Pushing the vaccine on, 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 on young children mm. where there's no, there is no benefit whatsoever, but only risk is, is catastrophic. Nuremberg too is like what everyone's demanding. Um, I don't know whether we'll get there or not. And if we do, like you say, I don't know whether anyone will be able to give any evidence, whether they'll have faculties or be pushing up daisies, like you say. Yeah. Last question then. Um, any advice you can give to, to any people um, just going forward with regards to looking at the data? Um, any any pearls? Don't, don't, trust, don't, trust the, don't trust the government data. Anything mm -hmm. they tell you about vaccine safety and effectiveness is flawed and um don't there's absolutely there's no reason there's no reason um uh, especially for for anybody under the <laughs> anybody under, I, i'm i'm i actually go far so i can't see any reason for anybody to take any 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 more boosters or anything like that mm. not until not until these you know vaccines have gone through the kind of rigorous five-year minimum period of of testing and trials that other vaccines have had to go through. Pretty much. Well, I'm conscious of your time. I know you've got stuff yeah. to do, being a professor and everything. I'd like to get you on again, maybe in a six months in a year, perhaps, to see sure, how, yeah. how, how much we were right about certain things. Yeah. But um, thank you so much for your time today, Norman. I really appreciate it. And um, I wish you all the best in the future with regards to everything. Are you still going to be uh, still putting out information about the data that you're seeing, or have you just... You know, yeah, no, no, we're still, we're, we're, we're still doing stuff. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, it's been really refreshing yeah. chatting to you today, Norman. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. I'll let you go about your day and I will send you this over when uh, when it's all finished and done and dusted with. All right. Or, or finally, okay. where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Where can people find you? Oh, so my website, normanfenton.com. It's got links to all of the articles, seminars, also the I've got a YouTube channel, it's linked from there. So I think that, that that from there you'll get to all of the information. I'll pop that in the description when I pop this out then. Nice one. Well, you have a good day, Norman. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. All right, buddy. Nice to speak to you. Bye. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.